we're in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. So if last week we talked about wives and, and how they relate to their husbands. And husbands, if you weren't here, then you just have to believe whatever she tells you. Okay? And so if she wasn't here and she's, she's spewing some stuff at you, you're like, I don't know, this is kind of hard to hear. You might want to go back and listen on your own. Um, wives, if, if you weren't here and your husband went back and he's telling you that you just have to do what he, uh, he tells you to do, you, you don't have to go back and listen. You just tell him he's wrong. No, you should go back and listen as well. But what I want to do is I want to refocus this, and I want you to see the same thing that we were shown last week. Look back up at 518, because I really think that to understand all the way from 521 through 69, if you don't get uh, chapter 5 and verse 18, you're not going to understand this. You're not going to understand how it comes together. You're not going to understand how it's possible. Back in 518, the second half of the verse tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit. This is the strong verbal idea. You're to be filled with the Spirit. And then he spills on out through verse 21, describing all the ways that it is met out in the life of the believer when you are filled with the Spirit. We're addressing one another in psalms. We're making melody with our heart. We're giving thanks always. And then in verse 21, it kind of becomes this governing theme all the way from 522 through 69. In and as much as you are filled with the Spirit... Inasmuch as you are filled with the Spirit, one of the marks of that is submitting to one another. One of the marks of being filled with the Spirit, in fact, the crowning, the last mark of being filled with the Spirit, according to chapter 5 and verse 21, says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we go into this discussion of wives submitting to their husbands, already understanding that the mark of being filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another. And then he goes in and says, wives, this is what that looks like for you. Submit to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. Now, husbands, in this application of what it is for you to be filled with the Spirit, the overarching theme for the husband is one of love. And you hear that and you say, this is fantastic. I love to be loved. Like, I, I, I love to be loved. And so you, you hear this and you say, oh, as a husband, I'm like the purveyor of love. I'm the giver of love. But understand, it is a particularized kind of love. It's a really specific kind of love that he's calling us here to. Now, I'm not entering into this discussion that I believe is improper in, in separating the distinction between phileo and, and agapao love or agape love and filial love. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's describing it not by use of one particular word, but by a description of a specific action. Look what he says. Husbands, verse 25. Let me read the whole thing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splinter without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. So we recognize that, that the theme or overriding principle met out in this passage for the husband is one of love and one directed towards his spouse. Now what I want you to notice there in the first little bit is it says, husbands, love your wives. And he's not talking about a one-time display of love met out on your wife. And so if your wedding day, if your wedding day, or for some of you, maybe even the day you proposed, if that was the zenith of your demonstration of love to your spouse, you got problems. Your wife knows you have problems because she hasn't felt loved by you with that much intensity in quite some time. And so if the height, the very peak of your love for your wife dates all the way back to the beginning and hasn't increased since then, there's trouble and it certainly isn't paradise. So what he's talking about here is this love that certainly has a time where it begins, but this love that is continuing over the course of your natural born lives. He says, husbands, love your wives. And what he does here is he gives us this incredibly difficult description of what that love is to look like. And I want you to be wowed. I want you to be blown away. And if you're not, I want you to go back and read it until you are. It's not describing and saying, husbands, love your wife just like your dad loved his wife, your mom. It's not saying, husbands, love your wives just as in in the best, most amazing movie display of love you've ever seen. Look what he particularizes particularizes it as. Husbands, love your wives. And this is how. Can't miss this. As Christ loved the church. And this is the action, and gave himself up for her. You get that. All of our agendas, all of our chest beating, all of our desires to, to, to put our spouse in her place, all of these things are found incredibly wanting and impoverished in this verse. This is one of these things that if you are a man, if you are, if you are married in this place, you read this and you weep. Because you recognize how incredibly short you fall of this. It's not that you read this and you say, I'm almost there. Like, I'm so close to being there. She told me last week on her anniversary, when I remembered it, Butterflowers took her out for dinner and had the babysitter there. Forgot to pay her, but we're working on that. Like, if you think you did all those things and like now somehow you're attaining to this, you've set the bar so incredibly low, it's no wonder she's unimpressed with your actions and efforts towards her. The passage we read here, it comes to every husband, and effectively, this is how we read this. I can never get there. I can never get there. Man, this isn't to to say you're off the hook, off the line. This isn't to say you're absolved of trying. The weight of this text is such that it says the intensity of your life should be such that you're always seeking to do this. So when you completely mess up for the first time today, you go to her and you say, I'm not loving you as Christ loved the church. For some of our relations, we need a restart It's not that you hope she hasn't observed the last decade or the last three years, the last six months of you not doing this. She gets it. She gets it. 
For some of you, your wife loves you so much, she's so gracious to you that she hasn't brought this to your attention. And she should. She should make known to you when you aren't loving her as you are called to love her. Because that's the love that she's called to express to you. The love that the husband is supposed to display to his wife is one of complete selflessness and completely sacrificial. Recognize that in loving the church, Jesus loves something completely unlovable. And I'm not saying that about your spouse, so sit down. In this description, what he's talking about is this action of giving himself up. Jesus died for the church. When does your sacrifice for your wife stop? When does your selflessness for your wife stop? It stops at the point of your death. Do you catch the intensity in that? Do you catch the, the overarching sense of this is, if this is marriage, then what in the world am I in? Because what he paints here is such an amazing picture of marriage that would absolutely wow those in our culture. It would absolutely blow them away. This isn't an idea of buying her gifts. This isn't the idea of taking her on, on amazing trips. This is the idea that of each and every moment that you take breath until you're entered into the ground, you live to love her. And in that, selflessly, sacrificially. Now, what I want us to see in this is that even as Paul is describing the relationship of the wife to her husband, he started bringing in this understanding that marriage is inextricably linked to the church. And so church and marriage go hand in hand. The church should be a display of marriage. And marriage should certainly show the church for, for its true nature, for what it is, being the body of Christ. So what he does here is not enter into a description of three ways that the husband can love his wife, but he's driving in the intensity, wanting us to understand exactly what all is contained in this idea of he gave himself up for her. So let's look at this, starting in verse 26 and going into 27. What does it mean that Jesus gave himself up for the church? And it starts off and he says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. Well, this is a really kind of compound idea. This is this really difficult thing. And so some of you, because you've been Baptist before birth, you read this, and anytime you see water, what do you think of? Baptism. Somebody said thirst. No. I don't know where you got that idea. That's very confusing. But you read through this, and, 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 and because you're a good Baptist, many of you, anytime you see water, like you want to read baptism. But Paul doesn't use that word. He doesn't use the word baptism. Instead, look what he says. The reason that that Jesus gave himself up for her is that he might what? That he might sanctify her. The reason that Jesus died on behalf of the church is so that he might set the church aside, make it holy, reckon it righteous. And so we, we establish and we understand that our understanding of ecclesiology, the things of the church, cannot be separated from our understanding of marriage. Jesus died so that he might set the church aside and make it holy. And this is how he did that, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is where we begin to get into this kind of discussion of what in the world is Paul on about. One of the the rites in, in this picture that he's seeking to create here, imagine that prior to the wedding ceremony... Uh, prior to the marriage ceremony, the wedding ceremony, the, the bride's party goes into her and they begin to anoint her with oils. They begin to 
get her all kind of gussied up. And in that, part of that rite is this bathing process that takes place. She is bathed. She's made clean. All, all the, and we'll just call it all funkiness of her, is removed in this bathing process just as any bath or shower that you and I engage in should remove our general funkiness. Right? Some of you are thinking, I don't, what, funkiness? Yeah, funkiness. And so in this, he says, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, made her clean by the washing of water with the word. What is she washed with? With the word. And so what's this idea coming into this? Well, if you look back, in Ephesians 1.13, it begins to be clear. Now, if, if you're reading this letter all the way through and taking you know, 10 or 15 minutes to read it all the way through, it will be much clearer in your mind. But because we're so separated by weeks and a couple of months of study, look back at 1.13. In 1.13, speaking of Jesus, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is the word of truth? The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. So we begin to get this picture. She's been washed with the word. The word has come upon her. The church has heard the gospel message proclaimed, and just as it happened in 113, when they heard the word, and then what? And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This picture of what has happened, he has set her apart inasmuch as she has been cleansed by the power of the word. The power of the gospel coming on the life of the unregenerate brings them to life. The power of the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to those who do not know, believe, or care has a sanctifying effect. It's got a sanctifying effect. The gospel that saved me is the gospel that saves the lost person. Amen? The gospel that saved you and saved me establishes them, brings them into the church. There is no other way to come into the church. Baptism does not bring you into the church. The gospel brings you into the church universal. Baptism is a testimony of that. What he's talking about in this is the power of the word to make clean, the power of the word to make right. To what end? Well, look at verse 27. He does this. He engages in this process of giving him up, of cleansing her, of applying the word to her life, speaking of the church, so that he might present the church, to himself in splendor. Using an image contemporary with our setting, it's, if, if, it's as if Jesus is paired up with the church back there in the back. And everybody's expecting the bride to walk in with her father, right? And so, but Jesus walks over and he, he links arms with the bride and he walks down and he says, I'm here to present her. And then he moves over and he takes the place of the groom and he says, I'm here to present her to myself. She didn't do the process. He brought her in. He presented her. And then the person he presented her to is himself. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the body, himself, over all. And we read that in Ephesians 1, and 23. Jesus is, is over the church and he's presenting the church to himself. And this is the particularized church that he presents himself with. Look what it says there. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus presents to himself a pure bride. 
Now, whether or not this is in Christ's second coming or in this salvation effect, we can't really determine from this passage, but recognize in this, we know the starting point for the church, don't we? You see, the, the starting point, the raw ingredient from the church wasn't Zach on his best day, it wasn't Callie at her height, it wasn't the halls doing all of their awesomeness. The starting point of the church were dead people. We're dead people. It's as if we went to Lynch Funeral Home, we opened up the door and said, John, do you have any dead people? I'd like to start a church. He said, this is weird, I could be arrested for this. Like, we, we joke and we laugh, but that is the picture that he's starting with. We recognize that you and I were dead in our trespasses. We were completely lost and we liked it. You go back to chapter 2 and we recognize that we were so completely lost, separated from God, and God came in and he gave up his son so that we might be what? Brought near to him. That we might be brought near to him when we're brought near to him in his absolute perfection and splendor. His glory. He exchanged our rags, our, our disheveled being, our sins and our past ways for his perfection, his holiness, to his glory. Jesus gave himself up for us. Then he turned around and he presented us to himself. Didn't have much to work with in the beginning. But look what he's made the church to be. Look what he's made the church to be. Now this is the difficulty. You see, Paul and, and his contemporaries and their writing and understanding, they're completely fine holding both of these ideas and moving them forward. So on the one hand, we've got the husband loving his wife. On the other hand, we're building this very robust understanding of what the church is, of ecclesiology. But for you and I, our, our, we expect our roads to kind of stop and to terminate. But what Paul does is he brings them back together over and over again. And so he, almost as if anticipating our misunderstanding, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Effectively coming to you and saying, look, you need, Patrick, you need to sacrificially love Kristen. D, you need to sacrificially love Mary Jean. Almost coming to us and really hitting us with this, saying, husband, you need to love your wife. And you say, how is that? In the same way. In the same way. The same sacrificial, selfless way, self-giving way, surrendering all that he is so that he might present her to himself. This husband is to do the same. But he says something particular and peculiar in this. Look at 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He's not saying love her as yourself, but he's turning it on them back and saying love her because she is you. I mean, it's just this crazy thing. Look what he goes on to say. He says, he who, loves, he who loves his wife loves himself because the husband and wife are made one. To love your wife is to love yourself. And in fact, if you do anything unloving towards your wife, you're also damaging your union. Recognize that when the husband and wife are brought together, the two are made one. And so to do something damaging, unloving, uncaring towards your wife is to damage that union that has made you one. And so for the selfish, pig-headed husband, two or three of you looked up, that's kind of worrisome. For the selfish, pig-headed husband, in your relationship with your wife, the question you would ask yourself is not how would I like to have something done to me, but what would I like to do to myself? How would I like to myself to be treating myself. 
It's, it's got this idea of returning it back in. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you hate your wife, if you care nothing for her, you also care nothing for the union that God has established, the covenant blessing of your wedding, the covenant blessing of holy matrimony that has united the two of you before God. Look what he goes on to say. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. So here it begins to break in and we begin to see this kind of concrete idea. Because you and your wife have been linked together in marriage, in this covenant relationship, which you cannot dissolve. According to scripture, you should not dissolve this relationship. And in that relationship, you are to do two things. You are to nourish and cherish her. Look what he said. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourishes and cherishes it. This idea of of giving sustenance, of of taking in food. This idea of, of, of making sure that you don't run and jump from the balcony to the floor, right? You take the stairs. Just in the same way you wouldn't enter into risky behavior to damage your own body, you wouldn't enter into risky behavior to destroy your relationship with your spouse. So you're careful what you see. You're careful what you take in. You're careful what you hear. You're careful about what you allow to be said of your spouse. You're careful about what you say about your spouse to others. The things you say about your spouse to your friends when you're around them should be God edifying. It should make them wish that they were married to a lady as special as the one you're married to. It's not this place to tear her down, to get together with your buddies, kick a few back, and say, man, my old lady is a drag. I mean, she's just terrible. I mean, I wish she'd die and collect some insurance money, and the next time I could marry for love or, or beauty or whatever. Or maybe just not get married, just travel around. That's what you have to say about the bride that you've been given. The bride that God has united with you. You and your spouse need to get along. You need to return back to the honoring, honoring the commitment you made before her and God. And the two of you need to give yourselves just to some honest, impartial, biblical counsel. Too many couples that I meet with have waited too long to begin marital counseling. Too many couples that I meet with have waited entirely too long. They've waited till they both hate one another, can't stand living together. And really, when they come to see me, all they want is the blessing. Like they want this thing for me to say, okay, you can dissolve it. I agree, he's terrible, you're terrible. Go find other people to go be less terrible with. If you're struggling in marriage, if you feel out of your rhythm, if you feel like there should be more to your marriage, call us. Come talk to us. Let us walk alongside you. Let us find a, a counselor that can walk alongside you and your wife or you and your husband. If your spouse has no desire or they don't recognize the problems in your marriage, you go to counseling. Go see someone who can tell you what it is to lovingly submit to someone who is a pig-headed jerk. 
Go and see someone who can tell you what it is to love someone who returns no love to you. This is why we don't do any weddings here without significant premarital counseling. So recognize that marriage is incredibly difficult. You've got two very sinful and selfish people trying to submit to one another. Nobody ever told you it would be easy, and if they did, I'm sorry they lied to you. But it's absolutely worth it. Marriage is absolutely worth it. Recognize that marriage was not designed to make you happy. Rather, marriage was designed to make you holy. Let me step off that soapbox stand. Recognize that you need to nourish and cherish your spouse. You need to find out what is it, honey, that that, that really feeds into you recognizing me extending love to you. The love that you extend to your spouse shouldn't be something that you you garner in John Wayne movies. The love that you uh, extend to your spouse shouldn't be something that you read at some point, heard someone loosely throw out Gary Chapman's five love languages, and so you just keep trying to do random things, like trying to see which one sticks. Like, I keep giving her physical love, but like, I just don't know. I just, I, like, I'm trying to train her in that. I just don't know. And you're like, oh, it's, 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 it's time alone together. No, like, she, she needs some separation from you. Oh, man. If we're professional married people, we should give some time and attention to being very good at it. If we are professionally married people, then we should enter into this vocation that God has set before us with intensity, with focus. It means we attend seminars, we read books, we seek out other couples who've been married for longer than us, and we say, look, we are out of our rhythm. How did you guys make it? We have some couples in the church that have been married 50, been married 60 years. What a tremendous testimony of the church and God's faithfulness. Amen? These people represent the best source for this local body on the subject of marriage. I've met some of the husbands. Their wives are the most gracious, amazing women. As I said, I've met some of the husbands. We need to avail ourselves to those opportunities that present us. If you are looking for a couple to mentor you, call the church. We would love to walk through this with you. We'd love to connect you with another couple. If you are a couple and would want to walk alongside one of these younger couples, or one of maybe one of these middle-aged couples, or uh, later-aged couples, and you just want to walk alongside them, call the church. Allow us to use you in that way. Use your relationship in that way. Look what he goes on to say here. This is kind of the height of this whole thing. Christ nourishes the church because we are members of this whole body. So we recognize he's bringing back this idea of marriage and the church coming back together. But look what he says in verse 31. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is one of these things where if you're quickly just reading through Ephesians 5, it seems horribly out of place. And so you're like, okay, we're talking about marriage. And then he goes into this little bit of ecclesiology. But then out of nowhere, Paul pops off with Genesis 2.24. Paul, what in the world? Well, we all know this passage. 
You've heard it likely said at your, at your wedding or a wedding that you've attended. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's not merely pointing at the physical union of becoming one flesh. But he's pointing at, at, at this, this spiritual reality of what transpires in this marriage. When the husband leaves his family... So he's not living for the, for, to please his mom and dad. When the wife leaves her family and she's not living to please mom and dad, and the husband's especially glad she's not living to please her mom. When they leave their families and they come together, they are made one. And this idea used here is the same idea spoken in Deuteronomy when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's the Hebraic idea of echad. It's just a fun word to say. It sounds like you have something stuck in your throat, but echad. Echad. They've been made one. They've been brought together in radical unity. Not that they are one person, but they have been brought together in one unit. And so for the husband not to love his wife is to not love himself. For the wife not to submit to her husband is not to submit to the order that God has established for them to follow. Look what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, be clinged to her. There's a durative aspect to this. Over the course of his natural-born life, until he dies, his intensity and focus is for his spouse, for no one else. Just as in verse 28 it says the husband should love his own wife and should love his own body, recognize there is an exclusivity to this. Many marriages are ruined because at some point along the line, the husband begins to think he's got a lot of love to spread around. You have only enough love for one woman until she dies or you die. Now, Paul comes into this and he offers us an explanation that you and I quickly, we would not get on our own. Like, I, I leave you a Bible in Genesis 2.24 and say, read this, let me know what you get. You never, you never come up outside the revelation of God with 5.32. We say, what is, what is it when a husband leaves his father and mother and the wife does the same and they come together? And you say, one flesh. And I say, okay, well, Paul tells us here in verse 32, this is a picture of the church. And you say, okay, come on now. That's just crazy. And I said, no, look, it's not me, it's Paul. Look. 532, this mystery is profound. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, he was referring to something that was previously unknown, but it has now been revealed by the will of God. So recognize this was previously unknown. Holy Spirit moves in Paul's life. He writes it down, and it is now made known. He said, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. This is one of the reasons the church has to live and die on marriages only defined between a man and a woman. Like it's not some pig-headed endeavor. It's not because we don't love people enough. We love people recognizing that God loved us when we were incredibly selfish, backward, and terrible. He loved us when we were dead and far off. Like hear me say this. God loved me when I was horribly dead, lost in sin, and far off. And he loved me in giving his son to bring me into life. We get this, okay? We need to articulate this better. We need to quit uh, saying hateful things on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, posting signs out in your yard or, or getting really pithy and terrible bumper stickers. Or just extending hateful sneers toward people whose lifestyles you disagree with. Like, that's not winning anybody. 
But the reason that we have to live and die on this is because it is tied to the church. It is tied to the gospel. Not by me, but by God himself. As evidenced by the inspiration that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul when he penned this. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Marriage is a, is a reflection of the gospel, and this union, as Paul writes it, is one that exists between a God-formed man and a God-formed woman brought together in holy matrimony. We cannot have it any other way. There is no place for capitulation in this. There is no place for giving any ground in this. It is not gracious for you to back down on this. It is disingenuous. Do you hear me? It is not gracious, loving, or kind for the church to back down on this issue. It's being unfaithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How you have this conversation with loved ones, how you have this conversation with brothers, with sisters, with children, with cousins, with friends, is tenderly, graciously, but holding doggedly to the truth of Scripture. I believe those things are not incompatible. I believe, I believe the way that many have purported them is wholly incompatible. The gospel of Jesus Christ drives us to be gracious with those, especially those who disagree, recognizing that we once wholly disagreed with the gospel of Jesus. He has brought us near by his grace. Amen? Got to be gracious. Friends, we've got to hold to this truth. One of the reasons... One of the reasons, and we keep talking about this because it's so pervasive in our culture, but one of the reasons we lost the culture war is because at some point a long time ago we quit caring what marriage looked like. We started kind of this idea of navel-gazing and focusing on our own marriage, but then only just when it was going well. The church, as we've discovered in Ephesians, we are all members one of another, one body, not many. And so when one marriage begins to fail at Ridgecrest, it's not that we all gather together in this back room and we say, oh, Pastor Matt and Valerie, they're on the outs. They're just, they're really having problems. I just, I just don't know. And then, and then somebody comes together and says, because it's, he's such a pig-headed jerk, we've heard him say that over and over again, it has to come from somewhere. And, and others say, well, I've met Valerie and, and it can't be her fault, it's got to be his fault. In that scenario, none of you are working to, to reestablish our, our hypothetical problems, right? Recognize we don't actually have marital issues. I just didn't want somebody else to think that some of you do. Nobody volunteered. I asked many people before the service, who would volunteer? The way that we work as a body is to come alongside them, to not gossip about them. Don't seek out uh, news about couples that are having problems in this church under the guise of, I just want to pray for them. You see a wife sitting alone, you see a husband sitting alone. You begin to notice they aren't together a whole lot. You go to the wife and you say, I love you in Jesus Christ. I think that your marriage represents the gospel. How can I pray for you? You see the husband sitting alone, you begin to notice he's not with his wife very much. You go to him, you say, I love you in Jesus Christ. How can I help your union, which I know shows the gospel, to magnify it and to bring glory and honor to God? This is how we recover this. 
It's not by speaking down to those who disagree, but it's by graciously holding fast to the truth of God's word and praying that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their lives. Let me just say this. No one is saved by converting from homosexuality to heterosexuality. No one is saved from converting from from a man liking men or a woman liking uh, women to liking a member of the opposite sex. That does not save us. Just as a drunk is not saved by putting down the bottle, we are only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended, and our submission to him in that endeavor. He gave himself up, not to make us better people, but to make us forgiven. He gave himself up, not so that we might be more well-presented and well-received in our community, but so that we might be forgiven. So coming to the conclusion of this, look what Paul writes. He says, this mystery is profound. I'm speaking of Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. What was spoken of in the plural in the beginning is honed in on each and every husband, each and every man who would see himself as husband. And would lay it down and say, if you would be a husband, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. So it's not just something that is particular, it's not that something that is laid out on all of us, but something that is met out on each of us individually. And so it's as if Paul were here and he walks up and he says, Bill, love Nancy as Christ loved the church. D, love Mary Jean as Christ loved the church. Ken, love Mitzi as Christ loved the church. Zach, love Callie as Christ loved the church. Corey, love Lauren as Christ loved the church. And he's coming to each of us individually. And he says to those of us in dating relationships, he says to those of us who would like to be married, are you prepared to love her as Christ loved the church? And if the answer is no, if the answer is no for those of us who are not yet married, then you are not yet ready to be married. He turns to the wife and he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And some of you, you need to respect your husband to the degree where you bring this back up to him. And you lovingly remind him, I don't feel your love. Don't feel your love. In respecting your husband and his position in your family, This is good, and this is right, and this is true, and it's something you should do. There are some brave women in this church and in other churches I've been a part of that have sounded the alarm for their family. They smelled the smoke, they sensed the fire, and they got help. And their marriages were redeemed, and their families were preserved. She needs to respect her husband. Recognize that for the role of the husband is one of loving and caring for his bride and in our marriages. We've got a real chance of showing a beautiful gospel to a lost and dying world. Will we do it? Will we enter into the hard work of, of, of loving our wives? Will we enter into the hard work of displaying this love prominently to a society, to a culture that is increasingly a non-marriage culture? That's the call. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I pray this morning that you would help us work on our marriages, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, convicting the men in this room, in this place, of their sinfulness, of their neglectfulness, 
God, and then calling them in to deeper obedience, that they would follow you well and in so doing would love their wives. And we love you. God, I thank you that in salvation you have brought us near, that you have forgiven us. And so, Father, to that end, I pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. God, they are trying to make themselves holy. They are trying to make themselves better. God, I pray that the truth of this text that they would hear and apply to their hearts today isn't that they need to make their marriages better so they can come to know you, but that in Jesus Christ, he gave himself up so that he might set them apart, so that he might make them holy. That they would cry out to be forgiven. God, that just as the word has washed the church, so too the word would wash them. That it would sanctify them, that it would make them holy, that it would make them forgiven today. God, we thank you for your goodness to us and pray that you continue to work in our hearts in the application of this truth today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.